the first reading is from Romans 2, 1 to 16, and you'll find that in the Church Bibles on page 1127. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you, not, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will re be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Okay, now we're going to the second reading, which is Romans 3, 9 to 20, and it's found on page 1,128. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the changes that Jews and charges that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. They are all turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sins.
Well, good morning everyone. Nice warm passage for us for this cold and wet Sunday morning. This is the word of the Lord. Let's get stuck into it by praying. Lord God, we thank you for bringing us here this morning together. We thank you for the gift of your word. And we ask, Father, that as we feed on it together now, that our hearts might be open and humble to receive what you have to give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A while ago, I stumbled on, um, on an online forum called Public Freakout. Public Freakout. It's a place where videos get posted of people behaving badly in public. Think kind of <laughs> grown adults throwing temper tantrums and then someone catching it on their iPhone. As you can imagine, there's a fairly broad spectrum when it comes to public freakouts. In recent times, of course, there's been a lot of mask-related incidents, people kind of getting tossed off of planes because they refuse to put one on. Of course, there's, there's your standard road rage incidents, between, often between cyclists and cars. But the most common video of all, by far, seems to be people who get shouty and aggressive towards waiters and retail staff. Think, uh, you know, Scott and his helicopter from last week. Wish I caught that on camera. He doesn't get shouty very often, but it's worth watching when he does. I don't know what it is, but there is something about the awkwardness of a public freakout that, that makes it hard to look away. But you know what I find most interesting isn't actually the videos, it's the comment section. See, the most popular videos have over 10,000 comments on them, which is pretty weird when you think about it. I wouldn't have thought there was much to say about a guy getting angry that there's not enough lettuce on his Big Mac. But what inevitably seems to happen in the comment section is that it becomes like a courtroom like a courtroom. There's judgment as far as the eye can see and condemnation is always guaranteed. You know, it's swift and it's brutal and it just seems people enjoy picking apart the subject of the video and ridiculing them, even abusing them. And it only occurred to me the other day, but if any of those keyboard warriors commenting actually spoke in public to someone with the same kind of venom as their online comments, they could totally wind up on the public freakout site themselves. You gotta love the irony, right? Those who comment on these videos are actually not much different to those they enjoy condemning. And it's the same tragic irony that sits at the center of our next section in the book of Romans. Last week, if you are here with us, Scott walked us through a dark and disturbing picture of our world didn't he? It was basically all bad news. And as he said at the top of our service, as we've been saying throughout this series, the book of Romans is all about the gospel, right? It is soaked through to the bone with the good news. And the thing is, though, the good news only makes sense if you first come to terms with the bad news. If you don't know what the problem is, you're not going to be looking for the solution, in other words. And so that's why the beginning of Paul's letter, it's so dark, because he is breaking the bad news. Last week, at the end of chapter 1, Paul describes a creation that had turned its back on its creator. He says this, people 
have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So now they go and worship created things rather than worshipping the one who created them. And the rejection of God has actually led to the rejection of life as he's designed it to be lived. Which is why this place is so broken. It's like we've, we've chosen to ignore the, the manufacturer's instructions on the back of the box. So it doesn't really work anymore like it should. We haven't followed the design and so the warranty is now void and, and there are no refunds. Friends, that's bad news, isn't it? Bad news. And unfortunately, as we come to chapter 2 today, we see Paul's not quite done yet. He's not quite done yet. There's actually more bad news on the way. Last week, it was, it was bad news for bad people, for the depraved and the greedy and the malicious and the murderous, people who are obviously doing the wrong thing, much like those who feature in public freak-out videos. This week, Paul is delivering bad news to a different group. It's like he's now addressing those in the comments section, the well-behaved citizens who pronounce judgment. This week, Paul's got bad news for good people. Bad news for good people. So it is worth saying, if you thought last week was confronting, put your seatbelts on, because today's passage could actually be more confronting. Because you see, in chapter 2, Paul switches from talking about them out there. You see that very first word in chapter 2, you. He's talking about people in here. Us. And what is the bad news for good people? Well, firstly, Paul says, you actually do the same things. So there's that. And the problem with that is that means God's going to judge you too. He's going to actually judge your secrets, Paul says. And perhaps the worst news of it all is that try as we might, in the end, our good works won't work. Our good works won't work. So take a look with me at how Paul begins this chapter. What does he say? You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Having called out all the kind of wicked and depraved acts of them out there, back in chapter 1, Paul's now like, hang on, let me, let me talk to all of you who were sitting there through all of that, with your arms crossed, with a disapproving look on your face. I've got something to say to you. You might be sitting here thinking you're better than them, but guess what? You're not. You're not. You who pass judgment on them, you actually, you do the same things. You do the same things. See, Paul knows the craftiness of the human heart, and he is starting to expose it here. Scott touched on it last week, but we all seem to have a default setting, don't we? Where we're lightning quick to condemn other people, but yet we're glacially slow when we're considering our own faults. It's true, isn't it? We've got razor-sharp vision to spot other people's problems and failures, and then this bizarre kind of blindness to our own. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, I don't do that, <laughs> congratulations, 
you're perfect, as in perfectly proving the point. Because you see, that's the problem. We don't see. We don't see it. And in fact, it's that very blindness that leads us to look down and to judge others. I'd never do something like that. Friends, it's hypocrisy. Plain and simple. What does Paul say? You who pass judgment on others do the same things. That's, that's almost a textbook definition of hypocrisy. Claiming to have a higher moral standard than is actually the case. And no one likes a hypocrite. Especially hypocrites. Funny that. Now some of, some of Jesus' harshest words were reserved for people who were blind to their own sin. There's always those who were the best behaved, you know, the teachers, the Jewish leaders, those who were really strove to follow the rules the closest. Jesus calls them hypocrites. He calls them whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside and yet full of death on the inside. Unfortunately, hypocrisy wasn't just an ancient Jewish problem. It's, it's a modern Christian problem too. Isn't it? A few years ago, McCrindle uh, released some interesting statistics on attitudes towards Christianity here in Australia. Fascinating. When it comes to people considering the Christian faith, they found that the second biggest turnoff after church abuse was hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. That does, does that surprise you? I mean, it shouldn't. Right, Because why take the Christian way of life seriously when Christians themselves aren't even prepared to take it seriously? It's kind of hard to fault the logic, isn't it? See, the, the problem, friends, is pride. That's what drives hypocrisy. That's what drives us claiming to have higher moral standards than we actually do. And we'll spend our lives looking down on others, thinking of ourselves as better, as more together, as more disciplined, as more whatever. It's actually our pride that's doing that. And, and it's not just an out them, them out there issue, it's, a, it's an us in here issue, Paul's trying to say. And you know, Christians, we make the worst hypocrites, I've got to tell you. We of all people have no space for pride because we know, we know the lengths that God went to in order to clean up our mess. Friends, the, the antidote to hypocrisy is humility. It's humility. Before we can speak into the mess that's around us, we can't ever forget that we also are a part of that mess. That's Paul's bad news for good people, right? It's you're actually a part of the mess as well. And because of that, God is going to judge you too. One of the earliest memories I have was as a young kid over at a friend's house. At one, at one stage, I was in his room on my own playing with some of his toys. I'm sure I was playing with the toys perhaps a little carelessly or roughly and actually ended up breaking one of his action figures came apart my hands, I just snapped it off. What do you do in that situation? Well, you toss it under the bed. <laughs> That's what I did. Threw it under the bed, 
kind of covered up around it so you couldn't see it. I figured, you know, once he found it somewhere down the track, there'd be no way of tying it to me. I said that story at 8am, everyone wanted to know what happened. I got away with it. So if he's watching today, I'm sorry. It was me. It's interesting though that at such a young age, that impulse that we have when we've done the wrong thing of just trying to hide it, trying to deny that it happened, it's kind of an innate part of our nature, isn't it? But here's the bad news, especially for good people, it's that when it comes to God's judgment, there's actually no hiding. There's no bed you can just sweep it under. God sees everything, including everything that sits there right under our surface. Today's passage talks a lot about God's judgment. I'm sure you noticed that through the reading. In fact, it may even, Paul may even talk more about judgment in this chapter than he was in the previous chapter, if that's possible. And what is Paul's point? Well, Paul's point is that God's judgment is inescapable. I think the most chilling verse of them all comes in, in verse 16 of chapter 2, where he says, that the day of God's wrath will be a day when God judges people's secrets. You see that there? Verse 16. God judges people's secrets. Your secrets. My secrets. Isn't that a horrifying thought? What are your secrets? Those things about you that no one else knows. Things about your past, what you've done or even things that you're up to right now that no one else knows about. Because all of us have secrets, don't we? Even those who are good people have secrets, the things that we conceal away in the dark corners of our hearts. The bad news, Paul says, is that actually there are no secrets. There are no secrets, not when it comes to God. And there is a day that's coming when he will judge all of us including our secrets, everything, all of it, it's all going to be called to account. And on that day, there will be no place to hide it. No place to hide the thoughts that you might have had about others. Those wicked, vile thoughts that that you've thought about, but no one else knows. No one else will ever know. And yet, of course, the truth is God knows. And a day is coming when he will call you to account for them goes for all the things that you've said under your breath, out of earshot, awful, spiteful, hateful things. No one could hear. No one could ever hear. But of course, God heard. God hears. And on that day, his wrath, on the day of his wrath, you have to give an account for each and every word. And all those things that you've done, all those things that you are doing when you're on your own, things that no one else has seen, things that no one else will ever see, God sees. God saw them because he sees everything. And one day he will demand and account for it. And it doesn't matter who you are. Paul says God shows no favoritism, right? There's no wiggle room on this. On the day of God's wrath, He will repay each person according to what they've done, Paul says. The day when God judges people's secrets inside and out, and there will be wrath 
and there'll be anger and trouble and distress for everyone who has ignored the manufacturer's instructions. Now, good people, when they hear about the possibility of God's judgment, they hope that their good works might somehow outweigh whatever wrongs they might have committed. That having lived a good enough life might be enough to save them from God's judgment. But for the final time, Paul delivers the bad news. He says, your good works won't work. Your good works won't work. At this point, he's really talking to the Jews in his audience. Because you see, the Jews of his day, they believed that they would be declared righteous by God simply by way of being Jewish. That by having the Jewish law, by practicing Jewish rituals, that this stuff would make them right with God. Not so, Paul says. Take a look at at chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, It is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. It's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Just having the law is not enough, he says. You've got to obey it. And the kind of obedience that God's law demands is actually perfect. It's persistent. And that's, of course, where the problem lies. Paul goes on. We didn't read this part of the, of the passage, but he, he goes on and he says, speaking to the Jews, you guys think you're a guide for the blind? In verse 19, he says, you think you're a light for the dark, an instructor for the foolish, a teacher of children? Then in verse 23, he says, but, but you who boast in the law... Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? See, they had God's law, and yet they failed to uphold it. Time and time and time again, they fell short, repeatedly and persistently. And you know what? That actually goes for us as well. Paul addresses, takes a moment to address those who are not Jewish as well, the Gentiles. They might not have the Jewish law, Paul says, but God has written the moral law in their heart what he calls their conscience, that sense of right and wrong, so that even at a young age, at my friend's house, I knew I'd I'd done something wrong. I I could tell. I knew. You know that feeling. We all know it, right? And Paul says, so whether you've got the law like the Jews or whether you've got the law like the Gentiles, we all have the opportunity to obey, and yet none of us do. None of us do. And just think about it for a moment. This is really interesting. Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, none of us live as well as we would like to. We all fall short. We're all less than we want to be, at least in some ways, right? And that even goes for when we are the ones that set the rules. You notice that? When we set the rules for our own lives, we can't even uphold our own standards, can we? Which is why they, you know... Studies have suggested almost 90% of New Year's resolutions end up failing. We can't do it, even when it's our own rules. What chance then do we have of perfectly obeying God's holy laws? Zero. Zero chance. But you, you want to know what the biggest reason why good works won't work is? Because the problem is actually far greater than good works. That long list of of depravity that Paul talks about back in chapter 1, actually it's just they're symptoms of a far bigger problem. 
the rejection of God. Turning away from Him. Living life as if He doesn't even exist. That's the real problem, friends. I mean, consider the parable of the lost son for just a moment. Probably the most famous story Jesus ever told of this younger son who goes and and, and he goes to his father, he demands to, to get his inheritance early and then he goes off and just squanders the money on wild living. You know, it's not the son's misuse of money that's the real problem in this story. His greatest sin is not financial. It's relational, isn't it? The fact that he's gone and told his dad, I'd, I'd prefer if you were dead. Give me your money and then go, he goes off and he abandons the family. That's, that's the real problem in this story. I mean, just think about it this way. Would it change the situation at all if, if, if the son, instead of squandering the money, he invested it really well and then he used the proceeds to, to found a hospital and an orphanage and then support a dozen charities. Would that, would that fix things? Would that change the situation? It wouldn't, right? He'd still be the lost son. He would still be estranged from his father. The, la- the relationship would still be broken. So it actually doesn't really matter what the son goes and does with the money at that point. He's rejected the father. And there's actually no amount of good deeds no amount of wealthy contributions he can make in order to make up for that. So it is with us when we think our good works can somehow make up for living a life that's ignored God. Our problem isn't simply a moral one, it's a relational one. If we're living life estranged from God, then it's the relationship that needs restoring. It's why your good works won't work. They can't solve this relational problem. And so as good as your life might be, you remain under God's judgment. And Paul finishes his argument really by stating it as clearly and as plainly as he possibly can there in in verse 9 of chapter 3. Turn with me quickly to it. What does he say? Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And then comes the climax to his whole argument. And you know it's the climax, it's kind of like a crescendo at the end of the symphony. We get uh, eight quotations, one after the other, from the Old Testament that basically all declare the same thing. There is no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. Friends, that's the bad news. That's the bad news Paul's been breaking for the last 80 verses. Everyone, and he really means everyone, everyone is completely and utterly ruined. It goes for the lawless and the godless ones who very clearly live pagan lives, but it also goes for those in here, those good people who try and justify themselves with their good works, those hoping that they might be able to outweigh the bad things they do. Friends, the truth is, in this state, as Paul says, all of us are without hope. Let's pray. Just kidding. <laughs> Can't leave things there. Because, <laughs> you know, neither does Paul. Neither does Paul. Now, technically, I'm straying into next week's passage. Don't tell Bruce. So all I want us to do is just to notice the first two words to the next verse. To the next verse. Take a look with me at verse 20, the last verse of our passage. Paul says, 
Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Verse 21. But now. But now. The way that's there in the original Greek, it's like Paul's putting it in bold. It's like he's shouting it out. But now, friends, after 80 verses of bad news, after 80 verses of darkness and despair and confronting us with the brokenness of the world, suddenly everything pivots on these two words. But now. But now something has occurred. Something seismic has happened. Something, or rather I should say someone, has changed everything. We get a taste, just a taste of where Paul is about to go next in, the, in that short but profound conversation that Jesus has with one of the criminals hanging next to him on the cross. You might be familiar with this. Having heard his mate mocking Jesus, one of the criminals instead turns and he asks for forgiveness. Jesus, he says, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, what does Jesus say? Jesus answers him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. You get how amazing that is, right? All he does is ask and God says, yes. Having lived a a life of crime, so bad in fact that he was getting executed for it, He meets Jesus just hours before his death and all he has to do is ask. And that afternoon he finds himself at the entrance of paradise. And as he's there, can you imagine what that conversation must have been like? Welcome, sir. What are you you doing here? Oh, well, I actually don't know, you know? Uh, uh, Yeah, I don't know. Sorry, what? You don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's, what I, that's what I said. I, I, I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, uh, let me get my supervisor. The supervisor comes out. All right, sir. Look, I'm going to need to ask you a few questions. Tell me, have you been reading the scriptures? Oh, n- no. Uh, have, you, have you been praying? How often have you been praying? Oh, I haven't, I haven't really done that at all. What, never? All right, what about the, what about the synagogue? Were you on the you know, welcoming team? I never went to the synagogue. Never went to the synagogue? Well, well did you give money to the poor? I, d- I definitely stole money from the poor. Okay, I, I'm, I'm confused. Please, please tell me you're at least clear on the doctrine of justification by faith. The what? Finally getting frustrated, the supervisor says, Look, sir, we're not getting anywhere. On what basis are you here? To which the man thinks for a second and says... Because the man on the middle cross said that I could come. The man on the middle cross said that I could come. Friends, there is now a new way of restoring our relationship with Jesus, with God. And it's through Jesus. This is the good news. We're going to get to hear just how good that news is next week. But this passage has been heavy, hasn't it? When we organized the series, uh, we didn't plan to end this way, but this week I was reflecting on this message as I was pulling it together, and I was literally in the middle of working out at the gym where I just thought, you know what, we can't end this sermon without offering a chance for repentance and for faith. 
We can't spend two Sundays walking through the darkness of our sin, sitting in the shadow of God's judgment, and then not get the opportunity to ask for forgiveness and to commit our lives to Him. We can't do that. I actually stopped in the middle of the session at the gym. I was like mid-bicep curl, and I went and wrote it down so I didn't forget. And I want to say maybe you've had a moment like that yourself this morning of realization, realizing that you've been living your own way, living as if God doesn't exist. You've realized there are actually secrets in your life that need to be dealt with, that you need God's help with. Maybe it's just realizing that actually, yeah, my good works aren't going to work. Any of that describes you. I want to invite you to take the opportunity today, right now, to actually come back to God, to say sorry, to ask for forgiveness. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you can know that God's actually going to answer that prayer. Just like the thief on the cross, all you have to do is ask. So I'm going to lead us in this prayer of repentance and faith. If you are ready to come back to God, if you're ready to stop relying on your own strength, if you're ready to start trusting in Him, please pray these words along with me in your own heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm sorry for ignoring you. I'm sorry for sinning against you. Please forgive me. From this day forward, help me to live for you in all that I do. Amen.